All right, so this morning we found out Troglin was supposed to be teaching this class. He has COVID, and so I cannot claim um, any of the wonderful content that you're about to hear. Um, I'm just an order up here, but grateful that you're here, and um, you can pray for Troglin and his family as you think about it. And just found out this morning that he has COVID. So far, his symptoms are pretty mild, just has a little bit of a fever. So let me pray for us, and then we will dive into our content. Oh God, we uh, rejoice in the beauty of your creation. God, the creation that sings your praises. And God, we recognize that even your word says that happy are those whose transgressions are forgiven and whose sins are covered. God, make us a people who are glad in you because our sins have been forgiven in Christ. And God, may that be the, the center point from which we work toward unity in the church by reminding ourselves of the forgiveness that we have in Christ that unites us, that reconciles us to a holy God. And that we can, from that, work toward unity and reconciliation with one another. We pray this for your honor and in Christ's name. Amen. Welcome back to our final session of Unity and Diversity. So over the last seven weeks, we've explored how God uses the diversity of his people both to build and protect the unity in the local church and also to kind of demonstrate to the world God's unique glory that's manifest in unity in diverse people. So we're going to close down our course today by considering what it looks like for us to work through times of disunity in Christ's church. What does it look like to work through times of disunity in the church? Disunity is not one of those things that we can just sweep under the rug and assume that it's going to go away. No, it's just going to fester and it's going to lead to serious fissures that will rock the foundation of our, of our church if we don't address them. So how do we work through disunity in godly ways? As we'll see today, God in his kindness and grace to us even uses times of disunity in the church to strengthen our bond in the gospel and to display the mystery of Christ to the world. Does anyone in here know what the Hagia Sophia is? A few different folks? Yeah, so located in Istanbul for a thousand years, it was the world's largest cathedral. It still has one of the world's largest masonry domes, sort of like a 532 AD's form of the Super Bowl, or excuse me, the Superdome down in New Orleans, right? And it's all the more amazing because in Istanbul, where the Hagia Sophia is located, earthquakes are common. So how has it stood for so long? Well, it's got a hidden secret. The cement that holds it together is from an island in the Mediterranean that has very special properties. One of those is that even after 1,500 years, the cement that holds it together hasn't even fully formed. So that means that when an earthquake sends little cracks and fissures down the structure, They're fixed as soon as it gets to sit a little bit longer. The water works its ways down into the cracks, and actually that soil then hardens and refixes again. It seals that ancient mortar tight, making it strong and stable again. So in a very physical sense, the Hagia Sophia is a self-healing church. In a spiritual sense, that's what we are called to be as well. When cracks or fissures, or any type of disunity run through our congregation, our church culture should lean so strongly toward unity 
that by God's grace, these things naturally heal up. As we've seen throughout this whole course, that's how God has designed his church to work. But as we all know, that's a lot easier said than done, right? Because even though we're called to be a people marked by unity in the gospel, we still find ourselves in a congregation filled with people who are different than us. No matter how similar our church may be, we're probably going to have people who are similar to us. In a a church full of people who are also different from one another, it's easy to feel overlooked or forgotten, misunderstood, undervalued, offended, discontent. And so what do we do with that? This is kind of a unique spiritual conundrum. So let's look at that second point there, God's strange design. So in God's strange design, he's called a diversity of people together in local churches. And then he calls them not just to put up with those differences, but to actually learn how to love one another in those differences. God didn't make a mistake. (laughs) If God wanted our churches to just be filled with all unity so that we would never have to work towards that, then we wouldn't, excuse me, (laughs) Uh, God calls us to put up with all those differences, but to actually learn to love one another because in our disunity, we're able to demonstrate love towards others because of the unity that we find even amidst disagreement because of the gospel, right? You can see that strange design outlined there on your handout. So that first fact, God has called Christians to be with him forever. But until then, he's left us in this world and he's gathered us into local churches, Fact number two, God intends for our life together in the church to show off his wisdom and power. There in Ephesians 3, Paul says that it's through the church that the manifold wisdom of God is made known to the rulers and authorities. Fact three, we are sinners. As you can imagine, the fact that we're sinners complicates things significantly. It throws a wrench in this whole enterprise of seeking unity in Christ's church. And yet again, God, in his wisdom, has left us with the beautiful task of displaying the glory of his perfect character in and through us, the very imperfect people of his church. And so I want to pose this question back to all of you. In what ways would a church that never has disagreements might actually be a sign of unhealthiness? So in what ways might a church that never has disagreements actually be a sign of unhealthiness in the church. I love you. You, yeah. <laughs> Dan's making the point like, yeah, just we, we overlook some of the differences that we have and just kind of assume that everything's okay. Go ahead, Nick. Yep. And that's just not how humans often work. And I think, you know, if you're, we often have some channeling levels of dissent, and I think there's ways that we should communicate or express those concerns, and it might actually raise us out of point. Yeah, absolutely. So Nick's making the point that we can easily just get caught in a system of feedback loops where we just get a reverberation of being around people that already agree with us, right? Yeah, so, I mean... It can be easy to kind of have a faux unity and diversity in in the church. I mean, 
um, there are churches out there that will, as we even talked about with that book, Finding the Right Hills to Die On, they will elevate kind of third-tier issues, and they'll make them first-tier. And so if you have a different view on, say, the millennium, for instance, maybe you think that there is no thousand-year reign, or maybe you think that there is a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ on this earth. But the church, the pastor, the statement of faith says that you have to agree with an all-millennial position, that there is no thousand-year reign of Christ, no literal thousand-year reign of Christ. Well, then everyone who doesn't hold that position is going to be forced out of the church, even though we could say that someone who holds a different view on the millennium is still in Christ. And so that's where we're kind of creating a unity that doesn't allow for diversity in some of these second-tier things. And it, is, and it is, again, that type of unity and diverse views that demonstrates to the world kind of a unique, uh, just a unique Christian unity that we have. Maybe it's something related to politics. Again, do we want to be a church that is only of one political persuasion or another political persuasion? Or can we look past certain political differences and say that, yes, our unity in Christ is what binds us. So let's move on to that third point. What makes working through unity, uh, excuse me, through disunity possible? So in the same way that, a fuel, that fuel makes a car's engine run, we need to remember what it is that makes our corporate engine operate. There's a kind of fuel that God pours into our tanks when we become Christians, a fuel that makes it possible for us to power through times of difficulty in the church. Again, so what is it that makes unity in the local church possible? Well, there's a ton that I think we could say, but one place that we have to start and one of the best places to start is our union with Christ. It is our spiritual union with Christ that makes way for our corporate union with one another. So let's turn to John 17 and let me show you what I mean. Turn with me in your Bibles uh, to John chapter 17. And just a quick note on these handouts. So, we may not, there may be some things that um, we don't hit that are physically on the handout. There were some kind of last minute things that, that Troglin cut from this content. And so if we go over some stuff, don't worry. You're not missing it or we're not uh, just kind of overlooking it. Um, but we just praise God that we live in an era of grace and not law. So we don't have to be bound by this handout. Um, but there are a few things on here um, that we might just touch kind of briefly and move on, but just wanted to give you that note so that you're not trying to figure out kind of where we are. I'll try to draw attention um, to the handout as we go through. So there in John 17, we're thinking again about this, this topic of union in Christ and how that is really what fuels our unity in diversity. So look there down in verse 20. I'm going to read verses 20 through 23. This is Jesus praying to his father. This is one of those moments where it's like we get to kind of eavesdrop in on one of Jesus's prayers to his father. So he prays in verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be all be one, just as you, father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. 
so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. One of the things that's immediately striking about this passage is how often Jesus mentions oneness, that language of oneness. He uses the word one or the preposition in, which both indicate oneness nine times in these four short verses. Jesus is clearly concerned about our oneness. And then in verse 23, when Jesus says, I in them, He's alluding to our union in Christ. He's saying, I, the Lord Jesus Christ, in them. By God's grace through faith, we are spiritually joined with Christ in such a way that all the benefits of salvation that inherently belong to Jesus now belong to us by virtue of our covenantal relationship with him. Do you hear that? All of the benefits of salvation that inherently belong to Jesus can now belong to us by virtue of our faith in him and that covenantal relationship that he's entered into with us. That's an astounding reality. Jesus, the only perfect one to live, the only one who actually deserved the righteousness that was his because of his perfect life. And yet here it's saying that through faith, when we're united to Christ, we enjoy all of those benefits that Christ has because he has covenantally committed himself to us in love if we respond in repentance and faith. And this doctrine is a central theme throughout the New Testament, especially in Paul's letters. And it is through this spiritual union with Christ that Christians in the church now have a spiritual communion with one another that transcends all earthly relationships. Division in the church denies that profound reality. That's how serious disunity is. It is our union with Christ that anchors our union with one another and allows us to work through division. So if you find yourself disagreeing with brothers or sisters in the church frequently, maybe the first thing you need to do is to glory and wonder in the fact that a holy God would find union with you, a deceitful sinner, through his son, Jesus Christ. If you find yourself disagreeing with brothers or sisters in the church frequently, maybe the first thing that you need to do is again remind yourself that the Lord Jesus Christ united himself to you through his son, Jesus Christ. Related to this is the reality that the church is one. This is what Jesus prays for in verse 21. But that brings up a question. If the church is one, then why are Christians called to pursue unity like they are in Ephesians 4.3? Why do we need to pursue unity if we already have it? 
It's an interesting question. I think sometimes Ephesians 4 is taken out of context. It says, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And we can take that to say that, oh man, it's completely up to us to cultivate, to foster, and to maintain the unity of Christ's church. But actually what Paul is saying there is that the unity has already been created by God. His Spirit, by virtue of our union with Christ, has cultivated our unity with one another. Our responsibility then is to eagerly maintain that unity. And that's what this class has really been about. How do we practically work that out? How do we practically make sense of being eager to maintain the unity that Christ has already purchased for us? So the answer is that when we work to pursue our unity, we're living out that oneness in Christ that is already ours. We're spiritually united to the work of Christ in the gospel, and now we're called to walk it out practically with other redeemed sinners. Now, what does walking out our spiritual unity practically look like? Well, Paul tells us in Colossians 3. That's the great thing about the Bible. It's kind of like a cheat code. Anytime we have questions, we can find the answers. So flip over to Colossians 3 with me, and let's think a little bit more about what this spiritual unity practically looks like. Colossians chapter 3. So Paul is calling this Colossian church to put on their new clothes in Christ. In verse 1 he says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears then you also will appear with him in glory. Where do we see spiritual union with Christ in these four verses? Verse 3. Died, risen with Christ, and then verse 3, hidden with Christ in God. Okay, so... There's that fundamental truth. We are united to Christ. And Paul is showing us that we, in our death to ourselves, are hidden with Christ in God. Again, that's, that's that doctrine of union with Christ. Then in verses 5 to 15 and onward, Paul shows us what a life hidden with Christ looks like. So what does the fruit of our union with Christ look like? Feel free to glance down at verses 5 through 15. Just shout out any answers. Put off and put on. What are we putting off, Aaron? We're putting off deeds of the flesh, and then what are we putting on in its place? Fruits of the Spirit, among other things. That's right. What else? Put on love. That's right. 
Amen. We all need more love. Just call out some of those other ones. What, what, what else? Um, what, what, what's some of this, this specific fruit of our union with Christ? Compassionate hearts. Yeah. Mike's saying unity that supersedes all other boundaries because we're in Christ. Paul says there that there is neither uh, Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all. Not part, not some, not 99%, 100%. Christ is all and in all. Wow, that's a novel idea. Bearing with one another, forgiving one another. Goodness, I mean, we are so quick to hold grudges and every news pundit that exists right now in this world, it seems, is tempting you to believe that you cannot bear with others with whom you have disagreement. And yet the scripture is telling us that we are called to bear with one another because of our unity in Christ. We're going to talk a little bit more about that later on, about what it looks like to to truly bear with one another, to overlook faults in one another. That's part of how we work toward unity. Anything else? Humility. Where do you see that, Frank? Verse 12. Yeah. There but for the grace of God, what? Go I. Go I. Oh, okay, yeah. Amen. Absolutely. Yeah, Frank's drawing attention to the point that, um, oh goodness, I mean, when we are in Christ, Christ is all that we have. And so when we try to put stock in other things, when we try to posture ourselves before others and kind of one-up ourselves before others, all we're doing is relying upon what we think to be our innate giftings are, (laughs) Everything that we have is a gift of God's grace. And so if we are tempted to look down upon someone else because they're no, they're, we think that they're not as developed as we are, or they're not as patient as we are, they're not as loving as we are, instead of thinking that thought, we should instead take a step back and say, whoa, oof, it's only by God's grace that I have any measure of love, that I have any measure of patience, that I've ever been able to bear with someone, Right? I would encourage you, take some time to work through this passage. That's one practical thing that you can do this week. Just read through Colossians 3. Give God thanks for your union with Christ. Give God thanks that he looked upon you as a sinner and said, I'm going to save this person. And then think about the, 
what then is the response? How do we, as those who are saved entirely by God's grace, respond? And then think about practical ways that you can live that out in your life. Is there someone in the church that you have a really hard time bearing with? Pray that the Lord would help you to bear with them in love. Do you have a really hard time with humility? Confess that as sin before the Lord and pray that God's spirit would cultivate in you a heart of humility. And then as we can always pray, verse 14, in all these things, we need more love. Pray for that love. So again, in those moments of discord, God calls us to put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. It's the love we've received from God that holds us together. And it's what enables us to be tender toward one another in the most trying of times. It's that hidden property that allows us to be a self-healing church. That love is like that, that water that seeps down into the fissures and heals those cracks of disunity. I want us to, to think even beyond the Hagia Sophia and to see how the original self-healing church worked through disunity as a congregation. Chris already talked about this a little bit last week from Acts 6, um, but I just want us to, to turn there again and go back and see again how these brothers and sisters walked out their unity in Christ and put on love for one another. So you can feel free to turn back over there, Acts chapter 6. This is just kind of a, another living example of how Christ's church dealt with disunity and sought to build a greater unity. So to understand what's going on here, let me refresh us with the context that Chris shared with us last week. So if you were here for our first couple of weeks, you might remember all the work that we did in Ephesians 3, showing how significant the unity between Jew and Gentile is to us and to God, even as um, Mike was just sharing with us from that Colossians 3 passage, that ultimately our unity is in Christ, and even distinctions like Jew and Gentile can overlook that because of their unity in Christ. That's not quite what's happening, what's, or not exactly what's going on here in Acts 6. The people our passage calls Hebrews and the people it calls Hellenists were probably both Jews. The Hellenists were Jews from across the Roman Empire who had gathered in Jerusalem for Pentecost, and the Hebrews were Jews from Palestine. Hellenists would have been more comfortable in Greek culture and Hebrews in Jewish culture. Hellenists would have been more comfortable speaking in Greek and Hebrews in Aramaic. Historians from that era have noted the animosity between both of these two groups. So unity between them truly would have been something that's remarkable. Not quite as heated as the Jew and Gentile divide, but a big deal nonetheless. So as Chris showed us last week, worldly difference was dividing this church. It was threatening the unity that Christ had given them. So under the leadership of the apostles, what did this first church do about it? Well, for a good portion of the rest of class, we're going to walk through a number of observations about how this church safeguarded their unity in the gospel. So you can see that, I think it's the fourth point there on your handout, pay attention to what threatens church unity. Pay attention to what threatens church unity. So is this just about a bunch of widows complaining about food? No. Zach says no emphatically. And Zach is correct. If we were to think that this passage was not worth much paying attention to because it was just about widows complaining about food, then 
we're missing the point. So in verse 2, the 12, that is 12 apostles, call together the full number of the disciples. That may well have been thousands of people, nearly every Christian on earth. That's how seriously they take widows. That's how seriously they take unity in Christ. The apostles leapt to action because this was much more than just a food distribution problem. We think we have food distribution problems in Walmart today. This is a way worse issue. What was threatened was the claim that unity in Christ is more powerful than whatever might separate us. So again, what's being threatened here is the claim that unity in Christ is more powerful than whatever might separate us. This was a gospel issue. That's why they took action. And that's why I suspect that Luke features this story so prominently in the book of Acts. Unity in the church matters because division in the church obscures the gospel. This is why Jesus prayed for the church to be one as we looked at it back in John 17. When people who say that they've been united to Christ don't live out that unity practically with one another, it makes the gospel hard to see. And this is, again, precisely why we need to keep our eyes open to whatever might threaten our unity, no matter how insignificant the threat may seem to us. Disunity shouldn't surprise us. Later in Acts, as Paul is addressing the Ephesian elders, he warns them, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Satan knows how important unity in the church is, and so he sows these seeds of discord to bring about disunity, to distort the clear and compelling message of the gospel that God has given us. But even sometimes, sheep within the same fold can nip at each other. They scratch and bite, and sometimes it turns out that they're not sheep at all, but wolves who want to tear the flock apart. Threats to unity deserve our attention. So that's our first observation. Second, we need to take responsibility to protect church unity. It's fascinating what the apostles do next. This is a really big deal, right? The gospel is at stake, and so they tackle the problem themselves, right? Zach says, no, emphatically, no. (laughs) That's right. Like you, You would think that the apostles were like, man, this is a huge deal, right? Unity in Christ's church is is being threatened. We need to spring to action. Well, they do spring to action, but maybe not in the way that we would initially predict. What do they do? They gather the whole church together and then basically throw this problem back to them. They don't tell the church how to solve the problem. They simply tell them to select seven men to do that. And they don't even tell the church who the seven men should be. This seems like seriously hands-off management, right? You'd think that this church would be really upset in their exit interview. They'd be like, man, these people didn't help us at all. But again, that's the counterintuitive message of the gospel. Sometimes we need good leadership. uh, Excuse me. As much as we need good leadership, protecting unity is our job as the congregation. And elders are a part of that congregation. But again, protecting the unity is not just a problem for the leaders. It's a problem for all of us and a responsibility for all of us. 
Every person in this room, if you are a blood-bought son or daughter of Christ, filled with God's Holy Spirit, bear a responsibility to put to, put to death the disunity in the church and to eagerly maintain the unity that's given to us. That's what we see again in Ephesians 4. We are those who must maintain the unity of the Spirit. This is part of what it means to be a church member, to covenant together with other Christians. So this has a number of implications. Let's think there, the first implication. For one, it means that when we sense a crack in our unity, we don't have the option to retreat or to wait until things blow over or even to wait for the issue to fix itself or for someone else to take care of it. We need to own church unity as our responsibility. Not just as our responsibility, but our stewardship. Something that God has given to us to steward well. If you've been offended, overlooked, misunderstood, forgotten, or undervalued in this congregation, you need to do something about it. Not to fight for your rights and respect, but to fight to cultivate unity. So let me give you an example. Imagine two people, let's call them Bill and Susie. They recently have joined the church, but as time goes on, they start to feel disconnected to other members. They each sense a lack of community. Bill kind of lets this discontent fester in his heart, but he doesn't really do anything about it. Susie, however, recognizes a real problem and decides to do something. Even though no one has ever asked her into their home, she's a member of the church. She has a membership directory. So she decides that she's going to start inviting people into her own home. Each week, a different cross-section of the membership, she picks someone, invites them into her home for a meal. Now, almost a year into her being at UBC, a good chunk of the church has at least been invited into her home. Now, who did the better job of fighting to cultivate unity in the church? Whose actions are going to help change the culture of the church? Susie. Susie could have complained. She could have pouted or left the church entirely. But instead, she noticed a problem and she decided to do something productive. Now, I understand that can sometimes be hard work. When you give an illustration like this, it's easy to be like, oh, yeah, man, I wish I could do that, or I wish I had the strength to do that, or, yeah, Susie's great, and, man, I just, I don't know if I have the strength to do that. But again, that's where maybe the first step that you need to do is to pray that the Lord would give you encouragement. Pray that the Lord would send people into your life that would encourage you to build you up. Pray that the Spirit would give you strength so that even if you feel like, man, how am I supposed to encourage others if I'm not encouraged myself? That's a lie that, I mean, even myself, I can be very quickly tempted to believe. But again, through our union in Christ, Paul says that we have the same divine power that Christ has. That divine power from the Spirit that literally raised Jesus from the dead now rests in us because of our union with Christ. And so we need to pray to God to help us, to help give us encouragement, to help give us the strength, so that even when we don't feel encouraged, even when we feel overlooked, we can still take that initiative. And one of the things that I've discovered is that oftentimes when we take that first step 
We don't, we don't realize just how much we even mutually receive encouragement by being an encouragement to others. And so if you can just take that first step out and trust, I'm going to love this person despite not being loved. I'm going to encourage this person despite not being encouraged. I'm going to give of my time, my energy, even my financial resources to help someone, even though I don't feel like I can. Once they receive that and you see the encouragement that God gives them through that, oh man, the Spirit then does an encouraging work even in your own heart. So we must own this unity as our responsibility and our stewardship. Number two, protecting unity in the church so often comes down to doing something like Susie did. It may also mean not doing something. That is, it may mean overlooking an offense. This comes back to some of what we were saying earlier. Proverbs 19.11 tells us that good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Of course, it can be hard to know when pursuing unity is best served by overlooking and when it might be best served by addressing a specific issue or an offense. Clearly in Acts 6, the apostles decided not to overlook this fault. So here are some guidelines to keep in mind when determining when to address an offense. You should choose to address an offense when someone's sin is dangerous for them, either because it's serious or because it's repeated. Also, when someone's sin becomes an impediment to your relationship with them, you need to address it. When their sin is making it hard for you to love them, pray that God would give you grace, clarity, sincerity when you seek to address them. And of course, this may be humbling to admit, since if you were a better person, you could just overlook it. But since when do, but since when do relationships not require humility. Again, we need to pray that God would give us discernment. How do I know when I am just being offended too easily? Or how do I know when this is actually an offense that I need to address? Sometimes there are certain offenses or certain things that we just, we take too seriously. Number three, addressing disunity is something our leaders help us do. But again, you shouldn't always rely on our elders to solve every problem that comes up. Again, when Paul says, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace in Ephesians 4, he's speaking to all of the Spirit-filled, blood-bought church of God. You have much more power than you give yourself credibility for. This task of eagerly maintaining the unity of the Spirit, we all bear responsibility for in Christ's church. Let's move on now to that sixth point. Be reluctant to take sides. So, yeah, go ahead, Mike. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. 
Mike's telling us that if you ever need a safe space, he can help you out. <laughs> Mike, Mike really is raising a good point. So for those of you who don't know, Mike and Michelle have served as missionaries for how many years? 20 some odd years and, and, and lived overseas in different contexts. And so again, that's a, that's a diverse experience. Even though they look like many of us with the same skin color, they have a diverse experience in different contexts that helps us become aware of some of our blind spots. And Mike's drawing out a good blind spot that many Americans, those of us have. We can take offense so quickly and so easily just to people's words, <laughs> just to simple things, to difference in political opinion, to difference on goodness, I mean, where we should go for dinner or, you know, whatever. But Mike was making the point that if we have a secure sense in Christ, it makes us so, so much less, uh, we, we just don't take offense as easily to, to what others share. Or if someone says something about you that you know isn't true, is your first response to publicly correct them and kind of bite back at them? Or are you secure knowing like, man, I am unified in Christ. I literally share union with Christ in God because of faith. And so regardless of what the world says about me, I'm secure in that. I don't, I don't have to respond. Yeah. Anything you'd add? That's good. Thanks, Mike. Yeah. And again, that's where we have to rely upon God and rely upon the community that God has given us through both of those means, through praying to God for wisdom to discern, when am I just allowing my, ruffle, my feathers to be ruffled? And when is this actually sin against me? Pray that the Spirit would give you discernment about those things. Next time you're offended about something, maybe the first thing you need to do rather than to respond back is to confide in a brother or sister in Christ. Say, hey, I was just, I was thinking about this thing. Someone shared this with me, said it, and I want to be slow to take offense. Um, and so I just, want to, I just want to run this by you, see kind of what your thoughts are. They may be able to help you clearly identify, man, I, 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 think, I think this is fine. I don't think this is an issue that you need to take serious offense to. I don't think they intended anything by it. But if you allow yourself to harbor that, then it is going to grow into discontent. And then it's ultimately going to grow into disunity with this brother or sister in the faith. Those are the types of things we continually need to rely upon God about. I remember seeing a quote one time. It said, um, Christians are those who are um, easily edified and hard to offend. And so be the type of person who is easily edified, easily encouraged, and one who is slow to take 
offense. All right, let's look at that, that sixth point there. Be reluctant to take sides. So one thing that jumps out when you look at Acts 6 is the apostles' care to avoid putting themselves on either the Hellenist or the Hebrew side of the argument. There's no mention of whether the apostles made any effort to investigate whether the Hellenist widows were actually being neglected. Apparently, just the perception of favoritism was problem enough. There's no dividing of the congregation with the apostles meeting first with the Hellenists and then with the Hebrews. Again, Luke writes that the apostles summoned the full number of the church. And then when they speak with the congregation, there's no mention whatsoever of any factional divide. So often we value our own preferences above the unity of the congregation. And one way that we can do that is by creating factions. We can do that even in the way that we talk. Us single people in the church struggle with, or, man, this church is just full of intellectual heady types. As if we can speak for all members of a certain group. This is an example of abusing our similarities like we thought about even just a few weeks ago. And I hope you sense even the, the, uh, uh, just the wrongness in assuming certain things about our church members. Assuming that you have to pit one thing against another or one group against another. As if people who enjoy reading theology somehow don't care about affectionately loving church members. Or by assuming that those who are affectionately loving and caring for church members in hospitality somehow don't care about the doctrine. We don't ever have to put those two things in, uh, in contradiction to one another. The Bible never puts those things in contradiction to one another. Our knowledge of the truth grows as our love for one another grows. Our love for others grows as our knowledge of the truth grows. Those two things must always be held hand in hand. Goodness, there's, there's so much more we could say. Uh, one of the things I, I, I want to draw attention to is that we have to be careful not to implicitly ask our leaders or even those around us to take sides when we bring problems to them. Even as Nick was drawing attention to, it can be easy to cultivate echo chambers. And so when we bring leaders in or we bring friends in the faith into some of these conflicts in the church, don't assume that they're going to see things the way that you're going to see them. Or don't present the issue in such a way that it seems like you are the only one who's right in the matter. Or that this person would be ridiculous for assuming that you might be wrong. We need to come humbly, recognizing that we might be in need of correction too. So one, one great way to avoid taking sides is to spend time with people on the quote-unquote other side. Again, we've talked about this. One of the ways that Satan sows discord in our churches is by tempting us to believe that someone's motives, their attitudes, or behaviors are worse than they really are. Assuming the worst about brothers and sisters in Christ is a sin that grieves God. It dishonors God. It hurts other people. And it weakens the witness of our church. This is, this is a huge issue. Even coming back again to the, to the point Mike was, was making earlier. How quick are we to assume the worst in others? When someone says something to us that kind of rubs us the wrong way at first, do we immediately jump to the extreme motive and assume that this person is like maliciously trying to hurt us or to discourage us? How do we think through those things? How do we encourage one another? 
again, we come back to this point of prayer. I want to do something a little bit different. I want to, I want to just briefly pray for us. I want to pray for the Lord's help in this regard. Pray that God would help us to, um, to, to work toward unity in these times of discord, to keep us from assuming the worst in others. So, so join me as we, we pray together. God, we, we do confess that we are prone to look for the worst in others. God, or even we, we believe what we want to believe about others. Forgive us. Forgive us, for this is sin in your eyes. Help us replace our self-righteousness with greater dependence on the righteousness that we have in Christ. Help us replace prejudice with open-mindedness. Help us replace a lack of love for others with love for others, regardless of how they treat us. We need your help in this regard, and we pray with the confidence that you have sent your spirit to be our helper. So even in our church, God, University Baptist Church this morning, would the people who are here take this to heart and seek to find unity by overlooking offenses because of the security they have in Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Sometimes diffusing division in the church truly is as simple as praying. Prayer is action. But there are physical steps that we can do as well, like inviting someone into our homes that's different than us, having a conversation with them. Imagine if a Hellenist widow asked a Hebrew man how she could pray for him and his family. That would be pretty countercultural. Go out of your way to love those who are different from you in this congregation, and you'll probably find that taking sides becomes that much less of a temptation because sides don't really seem to exist. I want to pose another question real quick. So what are some of the other ways that we can avoid taking sides in disputes or discontent in our church? What are ways that we can avoid taking sides in disputes or discontent in our church? So Claire, in tandem with Elam, says that we need to listen. We are quick to speak and slow to listen, but instead we should be slow to speak and quick to listen, quick to hear. That's right. Again, even as I think it's just such a great illustration with Mike, like if we're not quick to listen to other people's perspectives, then again, we assume that the way that we experience the world, even how our relationships are mediated, that it's all one way. But then you talk to someone else and you're like, whoa, no, there actually is more than one way to think about things. There's more than one way to engage in a problem. And so that's where some of that listening to the perspectives of others really helps us. Superb.
Yeah. 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 I mean, Mike's drawing the point, like how quickly can we assume like what someone's intentions were in saying something or doing something? And then we just simply talk and listen to them and they're like, whoa, this turned out completely different than what I anticipated. Right. I remember there was a story one time of, of a, of a pastor and this girl in the church who had joined and she felt like she wasn't well cared for by the church. She felt like the pastor wasn't personal enough. And so she wrote this letter that was uh, pretty serious and um, maybe the tone was a little bit too harsh, but she really just wanted to write about some concerns that she had. And so she put it in the mail and she sent it off to the church. And um, a couple of weeks go by and she sees the pastor and she just lays into him. Because in the conversation with the pastor, it was clear that the pastor hadn't read the letter. And so she just lays into him, goes after him, accusing him of all of these sorts of different intentions and other sorts of things. And then finally he realizes, like, some, something's not adding up right here, right? And so he probes with a couple of questions, and come to find out, he, the letter had gotten lost in the mail. <laughs> and so all of, this, uh, all of this that she was bringing at him was because she was assuming that he had read the letter, didn't care to engage with some of the constructive feedback that she was giving, and then she really had her foot in her mouth, right? And so that's just a, a simple illustration. There's so many times where we can assume intentions of uh, among other people when in first maybe the first thing we need to do is just ask a question ask a true humble honest question where we genuinely want to seek understanding there's a big difference between asking a question for the sake of asking a question and asking a question because you're seeking understanding try to seek understanding in other people well as you can probably see on your handout there are three points left and it is 1008 so maybe what we'll do is I'll, I'll take some time for any other questions or, or comments you have, um, any, anything that you want to add to any of this, and then I'm going to look through my notes real quick and see if there's anything else that um, would be important to highlight. But any, any questions or, or comments from you? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Frank's making the point that um, there are more ways to do things than what we perceive there are. (laughs) Just because we think one way of doing things is right doesn't mean that there's not another way. And again, that, that comes back to that listening point. So, I mean, just one last thing I want to highlight. Um, If you still have your Bible open to Acts 6, 
how does this, how does this kind of section that, that Luke is writing on close in verse 7? Shout it out. It's like, whoa, the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly. And then don't even miss this. And a great many of the priests became obedient to faith. I mean, that is, that's massive. Jewish priests turning away from the whole tradition that they've grown up in and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. This whole law system. Is this a coincidence? Is this just an afterthought that Paul's drawing attention to? No, (laughs) when we as a church work together through disunity for the sake of our unity in Christ, we can trust that the Lord blesses that, that he causes his word to multiply greatly. And so this is a significant issue. It's not something, again, that we can just overlook or to just assume that things are going to get better, but that we have an active role in playing in. And so even as we wrap this, class out, uh, wrap this class up, I want you to consider that every single one of you bears a responsibility and a stewardship to actively seek unity with your brothers and sisters in the Christ here at UBC, but to also have your, your ears open, your eyes open, looking for anything that would seek to threaten disunity in the church. Pray for one another that we would be better equipped for this task. Pray for the deacons of our church, that they would be physical, tangible servants that help to preserve the unity in the church, even as we saw here in Acts 6. Pray for your pastors, that they would have wisdom to know when the sheep are biting one another, when there might be a sheep that's actually just a sheep disguise, or a wolf disguised in sheep's clothing. All right, all of this task, all of this task is ours, and we do it I mean, it's amazing that the Lord actually lets us do it, but the Lord lets us do it together. And because of our union in Christ, we can. And so that's really what so much of this class has been about. I would encourage you to, to even press into some of those recommended resources that are on the back of, back of your handout. Those are just great, great things to, to continue to, to, to work through. Ask others about it. There's so much more we could say. Let me, let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll close our time. God, we... We're amazed that you would condescend by sending your son, Jesus Christ, to live among us, to die for us, to raise from the dead for us, so that through our faith in him, we might be united to you, that we might enjoy all of the gifts of salvation that are his. And ultimately, Lord, so that as we're gathered in local churches until you return, that we can demonstrate to the world that our union with Christ is greater than any earthly difference that we may think we have. God, help us to be as innocent as doves and wise as serpents as we seek to engage in this task of preserving the unity that your spirit has given us. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.